Welcome to the Breaking the Starters podcast, where we teach you how to get high-paying jobs in tech in about a year. Over 51 million Americans filed for unemployment over the last 17 to 18 weeks due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of these people are women and people of color. And what many people don't realize is that most people have a smartphone, but less than 60% of black and brown people have a laptop. That problem is, is near and dear to our heart, uh, which is why we are launching a campaign that we're calling Reskill America, the Great Rehiring Initiative, where we're raising half a million dollars and giving 5,000 laptops to people that want to enroll in coding boot camps to get a job in tech. Um, if you want to apply for that, make sure you go to careercomer.com slash apply so we can understand what your goals and your needs are. Um, and, and it's interesting to see the trends that coronavirus has accelerated. Um, the same thing that's happening to universities is very similar to what happened with newspapers when they lost their geographic monopolies uh, because there's a Cambrian explosion of universities going online, doing a hybrid of, ver of both, many of them shutting down because of the, the cost constraints that the pandemic is accelerating. And many Americans are considering whether they're going to do a gap year, um, go to a, a university that has partnered with a boot camp that has a job guarantee that gives them a credential and the job. Um, and, and there's all kinds of things that are happening, which is why I'm excited uh, about today's podcast interview that we're doing with the CEO of General Assembly. Um, his name is Jake Swartz, and he's going to talk about how he shut down 120 campuses to go online in two days how General Assembly got to 80,000 alumni, what they're doing with corporations around corporate training to get employers to pay for education, his thoughts on how the government can potentially get involved with job training, and their nine-figure acquisition by ADECO. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you enjoy it, please don't just listen to it. Share it with somebody that can benefit um, from this insight and these resources. If you have feedback, positive or negative, please send an email to Ruben Archer or Team Moore at BreakingIntheStartups.com. That's R-U-B-E-N-A-R-T-U-R-T-I-M-U-R -E -R -R at BreakingIntheStartups.com. If you haven't liked our Facebook page or joined our Facebook group, please sure, make sure that you do that. Um, and without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Artur and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so it's a Thursday morning and May just started. All of us are practicing social distancing. So our guest is actually tuning in from New York. Arthur Rubin and I were based in San Francisco, but we are in different homes. And things are, we're doing social distancing, staying safe and excited to bring um, this episode for many of you who are staying at home and you are figuring out how to level up your careers. So Rubin, can you please introduce our guest? Yeah, man. So as you said, our guest, Jake Schwartz, is tuning in from New York. He grew up on the West Coast. I'm excited about this, not just because he's the founder of an amazing company called General Assembly, but also because he's a musician. Like myself, he plays guitar, he plays bass. He, he's like sitting here in the studio right now with four guitars in the background and a bunch of instruments that we can't see. He's well-educated. He's an inspiration to all of us. And I'm really excited to unpack not just the story of GA, but his thoughts on what was happening pre-coronavirus to post-coronavirus and how students that are either unemployed or looking to reskill can take advantage of the opportunities that they're providing. And before going too deep into that, I just want to say, welcome, Jake, to the show. Hey, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's about 33 million Americans that have lost jobs in the last seven weeks. Something that was cool that we're talking about in the pre-chat is that GA has about a 120 campuses globally, and you have to shut them all down in two days and go completely online. So I think it'd be awesome to kind of like tell people what GA is and then tell them a little bit about that experience and how it looks like now. Well, I mean, I'm guessing people on this podcast have at least heard of GA. 
you know, we were founded in 2010, you know, out of New York. Really, I think we sort of started in a lot of ways as, as a different kind of company in that we were one of the first sort of premium co-working spaces. But we had some of the hottest startups at the time in our space. Some of them have gone on to amazing success like SeatGeek and Food52, Artsy, things like that. And But we had this room that had no windows in it. And so we were really like kind of debating what to call this room because it kind of sucks to have a room with no windows in it. We just sort of decided almost sort of cheekily to call it a classroom. And as we started to ride on that, it was almost kind of like a joke. We were like, oh, we should run classes. We should like have the startups teach classes for other startups. Like, let's do that. And so we started to experiment with that. And the energy around that was just kind of insane from like the whole city. Like we were just selling out seats to this little classroom all the time. And that really, for me, was like this, you know, and we're talking like within a month of opening, we sort of saw this action. So I was like, wow, what's going on here? And that really led to us building our first like three month programs really on the, I'll talk a little bit about that later of like sort of how that idea came to us. But we now have 120 classrooms around the world, a bunch of different continents, doing some teaching a bunch of different stuff. But what I say is we will actually let's, let me let keep going on that story first. So we have like 120 classrooms and, and really the thinking was at the time was, we had all these people coming to one night classes, but we were pretty sure that like, that's not what makes like improving yourself, you know, learning, enrolling in some kind of program worth it. What makes it worth it is really that at the end of the day, like you get somewhere through that, right? People don't ever stop their life, put a bunch of money into some sort of educational program because they just want to have a great experience in a classroom. That's not why anybody does it whether it's a graduate program or whether it's like a GA immersive program, it's the same thing. You're doing it for what you get on the other side of, right? And our view of it was that that it's an investment. And as an investment, it's really important that we, as sort of the provider of the whole framework to make that investment, that return on investment, that trusting us with their time and their energy and their passion and their money that we had a really, really high bar that we had to get over. And we had to build a global organization that could support students of all different types at all different parts of their journeys. And that sort of led to these first three-month programs. And now we, you know, we do software development, data science, UX design, digital marketing. You know, A lot of those were things that you know, now everybody does, but we were in many ways doing them before that based on really where the job market is. And I would say that um, at this point now we do, you know, we have like 25,000 students a year, I think. I haven't even gotten the last numbers. We've got 120 classrooms around the world. We've got now a huge amount of online stuff. We also work with about half of the Fortune 500, helping them think about their own reskilling and upskilling strategies for their employees, which we think is really important. So, you know, all of this is really under this umbrella of like, I like to think of it as we like went against the grain. Nobody thought you could build like an institution that didn't have like a gothic architecture and was called the university of something. And we kind of just like went and did it. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job. So that's GA in a nutshell. Now, I think coronavirus is all of a sudden here. And it's a really interesting moment because, you know, when we started, people thought we were crazy for trying to do anything in the offline world. You know, when I was going out to get investors, they were all like, well, we love this story, but it would need to be all online for us to invest. And that was crazy because when we looked at what was going on in the world of online education, especially like 10 years ago, you know, this is when like MOOC hysteria was present, right? Or MOOC mania is that what we saw is that the ability of those kinds of online programs to actually get people somewhere else in their life. It can definitely get some information to their brains, but does it get them a job? Does it get them knowing all this stuff? Does it get them confident enough to go into an interview? These were the things that we thought really mattered. Because again, we're thinking about investment and return, um, not just the experience of learning for, for learning's sake. And so we were like completely offline for the longest time. But I always knew, like, obviously, if we could be online, that would be amazing, but it had to be done right. And so I would say it took us 10 years of trial and error of really sort of 
inching at it to figure out what our philosophy of what like online learning should look like and what kind of online learning could get to the same outcome as our classroom experience. And it's really in the last couple of years that, you know, we have a bunch of live online programs that we've run where we've seen that level of parity in the experience and engagement and sort of positivity of the students. And so the real test of that happened just in March, where literally in, the, in a couple of days, we realized we need to shut down all the campuses and we have students that are in class right now. What are we going to do? And so we took what we, the platform that we had built, sort of do these live online classes and basically just flipped the switch and everybody was on it overnight. And I mean, this is probably one of the moments that I'm most proud of for the entire GA team because it wasn't like simple and it certainly didn't have, it wasn't like seamless in its transition, but the level of just positivity we've now gotten from the students who sort of saw both like how fast we did this and such intention that we did it, but also what the results have felt like for them and really sort of counter to some of their expectations of what an online program could be. It's really kind of just a testament, I think, to the sort of the careful building of a philosophy around what the GA program should be like. And I would say right now we have a lot of happy students who are getting to sort of continue their learning and do it at a time where they're stuck at home. And I think some of them are even kind of happy because they just don't have to wear pants and they can still learn to code. <laughs> you know? I, mean, I think that's an amazing story especially seeing everything that you've done since 2010. I think you went over a very good history of GA. Um, what a lot of people don't know as well is you all were also acquired by a big organization called ADECO, which is the world's largest staffing firm. I think it was for uh, $413 million, Is that correct? Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the reason why you partner with such a large staffing firm is not because it was final, but because you wanted to operate independently with the growth-focused parents. So what do you think is different now that you are partnered with such a large staffing firm? Because to your point, you've been graduating 25,000 people a year, but now you have like superpowers and additional things to continue your, your mission. Um, so what's different now that you've been acquired by, by ADECO versus before when you were independent? Yeah. So, you know, in many ways, like, I guess the story has to start with the fact that we raised over $100 million in venture capital to get to this point, right? So you have to sort of think about it from that perspective is like we had investors and investors like our students expect a return on their investment, right? So that was sort of part of the framework. I also was looking at the state of the world and where we wanted to go and what we wanted to accomplish. And it was very clear that there were just levels to go and where we needed to get to, or at least to sort of satisfy our vision that was going to be very hard to do unless we wanted to raise like another hundred million dollars. You know, I don't know how many people talk about that on this program, but like venture capital comes it's with strings attached and you have, and it, it can d diminish your autonomy and you have to be very careful. And so I think there was a time, you know, I really felt like there was a moment where we needed to think about what the GA future was going to be. And we had an obligation in our case, not just to our investors, and not just to our employees, which I think almost any startup has, but also to our alumni, right? I felt this tremendous obligation to make sure for all of the alumni who had bet on us that we were going to be around long enough to support them throughout their career. And that was really important to me. At the same time, I think like this world of education to employment was shifting so much. And so the opportunity to sort of partner with ADECO, which is the world's largest staffing company, you know, they have relationships with like the Fortune 1000, at least. They really connect everywhere. They have 2 million people on their payroll every day, which is mind blowing to me. And what was really attractive about the idea of being acquired by ADECO was they operate like a holding company. They have tons of different brands that do a bunch of different things in all different locations around the world. And for me, this was like, it's sort of like a employment theme focused Berkshire Hathaway, right? In that it's not like, it's not supposed to be a single monolithic uniform entity where everybody's doing the same thing the same way which I thought if that kind of company would really have crushed, I think, the GA brand, the spirit, the community, and the mission. And so it was sort of this really amazing place where we could have the best of both worlds. We now have a global company with billion dollars on their balance sheet at any given time. You know, They have like $30 billion of revenue. 
So we're sort of financially secure, which, you know, we didn't know coronavirus was going to happen at the time, but holy crap, is that a great thing to have in a moment like this? And, but at the same time, we were going to allow the company to still flourish with all the things that made the company successful from the beginning. And so I think we've had tremendous success in just sort of the seamlessness of that. Like, I would say most of the people who work at GA would say that it doesn't feel terribly different than it did pre-acquisition, other than, you know, I think it's bigger and better than it was before. But that's always, you know, one year to the next. So, you know, I also think, I always try to remind people that it's been so interesting, this journey, right? The boot camp space. And by the way, I've always hated the word boot camp. But let me just get that out there. I tried to prevent that word from becoming the word, but it just I couldn't fight it. But <laughs> I just think it's too short term. It's, it's too masculine. I think there's all these problems with it. But anyway, I also think, but if you look at this space, everybody's in a rush to make this like an industry, to make this like a mature kind of category. And the reality is that like we're in like the first or second inning of really what I would call this ROI-focused tactical education movement. And it's really only touching a small percentage of the people that could potentially touch. But if you look at sort of like there's so many worlds of, of employment, right? I mean, look at the sec- tech is exciting and growing, but the real big sectors of the economy are things like healthcare and light industrial and all sorts of stuff like that. And the reality was, is that I felt like as we get to reach those kinds of people, you need different sort of tools in your toolkit for how to make the economics work to how to make those programs work. And I thought like a deco with all of their sort of different experiences in the world of employment would give us a much sort of broader palette with which to innovate going forward. Yeah. And I still yeah, really right. feel that way. So I think from a student's perspective, having a school that they know is going to live on beyond just their graduation date, I think it's a reassuring factor. As our listeners are sitting here and they're thinking about the next uh, 12 months, the next 10 years, I love your emphasis on education that has a return. Can you dive deeper and maybe like explain to our listener that might be hearing about coding schools for the first time? Can you explain to them what you actually mean by like return on your education and how is that different than some traditional like online or in-person colleges and universities? Yeah, sure. So, well, let's look at my business school experience, actually. I'll take business school because it's just sort of outside of that realm. And I'll explain sort of people when I was in business school, this is part of what gave me the idea was that everybody talks about it as an investment, especially because business school, everybody wants to be like a future Warren Buffett. So they're always talking in those terms. So the way you really should think about it is like, okay, so I went to business school. That was like two years, basically, two at least school years that I had to go out of the workforce. I could probably make, let's say, $120,000 a year for those two years, but instead I'm going to be in school. So your first investment, in some ways meaningful investment, is that time where I could have been making $120,000 a year, let's just say. Maybe it would have been 80, maybe it would have been 160. I don't know. It probably would have been 80 because I was always a bad employee. But, you know, let's say, so you have that. And then on top of it, you know, Wharton was crazy and cost $45,000 a year. Or no, that can't be right. 60 grand a year. So then you have that cost on top of it. Then you have your living expenses on top of that. And then, I mean, what was crazy at Wharton is this was pre-2008. So everybody thought they were all going to be these rich, like hedge fund traders when they got out. So everybody was like just going into debt, going in, on these like crazy trips around the world, partying their face off. I mean, it was a good time while it was going, but it came to an end pretty quickly when Lehman crashed. And so you got to think about that, like all in that MBA, you know, probably costs, I mean, you could say like from a straight cash perspective, maybe $300,000, $350,000. You might get like, you could round that up to five hundred dollars if you sort of got philosophical about it. But let's just say that's the kind of investment you're making in a two-year professional program. Now, nobody worries about the graduates of a place like Wharton because everybody knows you're going to get great jobs. You're going to have a, you know, most of the alumni are really successful coming out of that. And so they say, well, look, you have to look up over the next 30 years, how many more millions are you going to make over the next 30 years because you've gone to that program? And that logic worked for a really long time and it works across all sort of different programs and things like that. But what I sort of found is that they had gotten really lazy about that, right? They'd gotten really lazy and, and, and extended timeline to 30 years and been sort of like somewhat vague about what that return was. 
And it really serves all these educational institutions because then they can raise the prices and it seems like it's still a bargain because you're, you're thinking in terms of 30 years and discount rates and, and you can get really big. But at the same time, what you really want to know is, you know, those first two years, like the now after you graduate from one of these things, what is that going to look like? Right. And because I graduated in 08 and I saw people, I had people who had just gone all that money into debt who then all of a sudden, you know, had a great hedge fund job until, you know, September of 2008. And all of a sudden they were completely unemployed. Right. And scared. And I think, you know, and it's not like Wharton felt a lot of responsibility for that. Right. And I think that to me sort of said there was this disconnect. I mean, this is Wharton. This is like a top school with great reputation, amazing career services, relatively speaking. And I started to say, like, what you really want, like, there's no other part of the investment landscape where you can get away by saying it doesn't matter with what you pay now because over the next 30 years, you'll make your money back. Right. People want to know what they're going to make next year, next quarter. And so when you think about, say, doing a program like ours, let's contrast that. It's three months. Three months means your opportunity cost is a lot lower. Right. It's three months of earning versus two years. The tuition, you know, depending on which program you get to is is considerably less. And yet the job you can get on the other end, like the ratio between the salary increase you can get versus what it costs you is like basically 10x what it is to go to one of those traditional programs. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go to like one of our immersives and not go to graduate school. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm what I'm saying is, is that there are other alternatives and there's a real economic rationale that makes a lot of sense of why that might be a useful thing to do, right? It also is a way to test it. Like we've had people go through our GA program and say, wow, I really like this stuff, data science or whatever. I'm going to go get my master's now. And I think that's great because what they did is for a fraction of the cost, it would have have cost them to just do their master's right away. They got a real sense of where they were going to go, what they wanted to do. And they, they already had real skills and the ability to be employed and they could make that decision from a fully sort of independent, you know, steady place. And so I think, I think that's sort of the ways to think about ROI is when you combine both time and cost, the actual hard cost versus what are you going to get on the other end? Now, I do think you should think about not just the first job, but the second job and how fast those salaries are going to rise and things like that. But one of the great things about being primarily focused on tech here is that at the end of the day, like, like it's not hard to make that math work because tech jobs are in such high demand. Salaries are going up all the time. There is always another job for you, especially if you have skills and a proven track record. And so, you know, we have now alumni five, six years out that are, you know, the chief digital officers of major institutions, you know, the chief technical officers of really cool startups, you know, founders of massive startups. So, you know, it does sort of seem like it is the start of a longer journey, but one that is a very sort of cost-effective sort of catalyst to get you where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, uh, we've, we've heard, had some very successful people on the podcast before that graduated from GA, like Amir Brown, that did also something unique that you all did um, called Adobe Digital Academy. So there's a lot of people that are doing yeah. immersive. There's a lot of people that are doing the different tracks that you're talking about, engineering, design, data science. Can you talk a little bit about corporate training because i know that you are a pioneer there um and employers are playing a bigger factor in employment with apprenticeships and internships so can you talk a little bit about your forays into corporate training and how ga sets itself apart there as well yeah absolutely so you know it's interesting that corporate training started for there were two things one is when i was at wharton i had that i noticed that wharton had this building off to the side that was nicer than the other buildings and whenever you would walk through, they had all this like food laid out. It was like much fancier catering than anywhere else in, in the in the organization. And and that was the executive education part of the of the of the school. And and so I always had this thought in my head, like, wow, what's going on in this exec ed world? Like, like that's interesting. And then when we really started to get traction early on in like 2011, we had all these companies coming to us being like, what we hear you're really cool. What can we do together? And that's sort of like the first sort of when you're buzzy, that's sort of what you get from companies. They don't know enough about you. They don't they didn't know what we did. 
but I, and, and they wanted to like, you know, put their logo in a, in our classroom or something. They didn't know what they wanted either. But I sort of like leveraged that to say, well, you know, I'm betting that your employees are very similar to a lot of our students in that they're anxious about their future career. They want to have skills that are super relevant and future oriented. What if we could put together a program for them? And that sort of led to the B2B side of GA. And, you know, I would say for a long time at GA, uh, we, we call it the enterprise business, was sort of a neglected, sad stepchild to, you know, the campus business that we had because that was just sort of growing so fast and so successful. But I always just had the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, what are we doing, right? We're helping people get skills so they can get better jobs. And there's a key stakeholder in, in that entire value proposition, which is the employer themselves. And if we could get closer and closer to employers, there's this opportunity to sort of be both sides and help both sides get closer together. And it really sort of is informed what I think GA really is, is that you can think of us as a school, and I think that's completely legitimate, but you could also think of us as like a value-added marketplace, right? We have on one side employers, on the other side individuals, either they're existing employees or, or hopeful future employees. And by helping sort of add value through skills and experience and community, we can bring those groups closer together. And what we do in the process is we sort of solve some of these talent gaps that you, you read about in the news all the time. So, so that, you know, that was sort of the rationale. And I would say over the years, well, I think it took really, you know, it was like sometime around 2000, 2016, 2015, 2016. And what we saw was, and really what happened was like, you know, Davos, like, the, you know, those crowds in Davos would start talking about reskilling all the time. And of course, they talk about it way more than they do it. But it sort of started to change the framework for the employees, them, for the employers themselves. I also think the, the um, job market had gotten a lot tighter. They were having a lot more trouble getting talent. They were starting to sort of come to their senses that they weren't just going to be able to poach all the tech talent they needed from their neighbor because there just wasn't enough. I sort of call it the I drink your milkshake problem, right? There's just not enough under the ground. So how the hell are you going to, you, you know, you can't just buy all the talent unless you have unlimited cash because everybody wants the exact same talent at the exact same time. And so, you know, we started to really build these like pretty large reskilling programs with employers and upskilling programs, right? And that's everything from helping, you know, a you know, big cosmetics company's marketing team, like understand what's happened in the last 10 years of digital marketing to things like that Adobe Digital Academy, which is helping them recruit a diverse workforce of sort of future technologists. And we sort of provide the on-ramp by giving people the skills they need to get into the door and get that first, first seat in the organization. So, you know, in many ways, I think as it evolves, it looks more and more like it's different versions of the same thing, right? Whether you're at one of our campuses or doing one of our immersive programs, or you're part of a larger organization, you're getting in many ways the same quality education. It's sort of the bigger difference is who pays and why. And my vision over time is I think that gets even more fluid. I think employers should be paying for people's tuition, you know, at hiring or, or taking on the burden of the, the debt or the ISA post hire and things like that. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those kinds of really creative solutions to this over, say, over the next five or 10 years. Let's talk about money. I like that. Talk about now that you're talking about money and history. Can you talk a little bit about the history of boot camps? Um, and, and how people pay, I mean, how people should think about that, especially during a time of Corona where a lot of people don't got money. Yeah, that's totally, totally cool. All right. So, you know, when we started, we were literally just charging cash. I mean, we were cowboys, right? Nobody had ever done anything like this before. We didn't even know it was going to work. So we just sort of put out, you know, literally like, hey, we're doing this thing. Who wants to do it? And we had people show up and actually pay, which was amazing. I mean, we couldn't believe it at the time. You know, thousands of dollars for this company that nobody had ever heard of. Now, we realized in the first few years, most of the growth was just like that. But what we realized pretty quickly is, here's what that meant, is that we were basically in the luxury business. We were helping a bunch of people who had gone to good schools, you know, whose parents had, had money or they had savings or basically just sort of accelerate their own careers with that money. And... By the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think a lot of people, even with those kinds of levels of privilege, struggle very meaningfully to find a meaning and, and traction in their work life. 
But we knew that A, we were never going to get as big as we wanted to get if that was our audience, right? And B, I think we felt like that wasn't what we wanted to do. We wanted to create accessibility for all people, you know, not just people with cash. And so, you know, at the same time, we knew that we did not want to recreate the problems of the past in terms of education financing. Primarily the, the crazy amount of student debt that everybody has, the sort of perverse incentives that most educational institutions have with their students and their pricing. And, and so we knew, and we didn't want to be seen as like a participant in that, what we sort of see as a toxic system. And so we had to think really hardly about what that meant, um, really hard about what that meant. And um, I would say we've been very lucky in that we, you know, we found a lot of really progressive partners who were willing to offer sort of very sort of student-friendly debt products to our student population and, you know, that were both affordable, but also pretty reasonable and targeted. And that was sort of phase one of it. You know, I would say one of the things we saw eventually with that is that that was great if you had a credit score that was good. But if you didn't, for some reason, I mean, and there's lots of reasons that people don't have good credit scores, it was really, really hard to take one of our programs. And I will say, actually, that I personally had a bias where I just sort of assumed, yeah, but like people with bad credit scores are probably going to be bad students, too. So like we don't really have to worry about that. And then I had this epiphany one day. I was like, why the hell do I think that? Like it's sort of such a absurd sort of, you know, lazy way of thinking. And so we actually ran a test on our own balance sheet where we financed a bunch of students who just couldn't get access to the financing because of their credit score. And we found that credit score had zero correlation with success in the program or success after the program. And that was like a big aha moment of like, wow, like I even had these crazy biases and we need to like think about how to deal with that. And so we started to do a bunch of programs around ways to help that. I think the best of those right now are probably, uh, is probably our income share agreement program, which we call our catalyst program. And we have a facility of $75 million by a really large investor. We have, I think, probably the lowest, the lowest sort of interest rates and repayment and sort of terms of anyone sort of in the space. And, you know, we've seen a lot of success with that. But what I will say is, and we were talking about this before, is, you know, before we were started recording, is that I still think like if I look at over the last 10 years, the story has been two things. One is us pushing to make you know, GA accessible to more people, which we very strongly believe in, right? As a very important part of our mission. While at the same time, a continued sort of evolution and innovation around how to best finance it. And I think we very much believe that we are still in the middle of a journey around what that evolution looks like. I don't believe that the existing ISA programs are the ending place and the next big thing for this. I think it's a perfectly great product. It works just as well. A lot of our students love it. I think there's going to be even better ways to do it, you know, again, over the next five or 10 years. And so that's what we're really working towards. And I think employers are going to pay, play a bigger and bigger role. And so, and I think there's going to be all sorts of weird mixes and matches. Now, for most people, this doesn't, we're talking about tiny little bits of difference, right? And I think some people really lose the track of this. I mean, you know, we're talking about in some ways, the difference of a couple hundred dollars in interest rate, right, over a couple of years, things like that. But I think philosophically, what's more important is, is there alignment between all the different stakeholders that have to participate in this, the students, the educator, the financier, et cetera? And do all the mechanisms work to create the right set of incentives for the students themselves as, you know, as part of that as well? And I think I've been really, really thinking a lot about this. I think there's ways to go. I think this sort of the new financial crisis that we might be in right now is going to be an interesting moment for to see sort of what has legs and what doesn't. But in general, I think what's really cool is and is that we're all and all of our students are beneficiaries of the fact that interest rates are the lowest they've ever been in all recorded human history, which means the costs of investing in these programs is lower than it's ever been. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think okay. that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of of getting GA to more people, I think like from what I understand, GA has one of the largest numbers of scales of students in the bouquet space, if not the largest number of scale of students. There's about 450 different players out here that are boot camps. 
And we talked a little bit in the pre-chat about how the barriers to entry are low, but the barriers to scale are very, very high. So, you know, how does, like for the people that do want to serve people, like what is something that GA has done differently to reach so many people? Like, I know you said 25,000 a year, but you've been doing this for years. So like, how many alumni do you have and how did you get to such a massive scale? Yeah, we have about 80,000 alumni at this point. And that's just sort of in our very specific you know, the, the, the sort of individual programs on our campuses. I mean, if you include everybody that's gone through, you know, any of our workshops or our executive things, I mean, it gets into the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And I think that's a very powerful network that we're just starting to tap into. And we've seen really enterprising students tap into it in, in an amazing way. I would say, what did we do differently? Well, I think first is that we built this not because we saw this trend of boot camps, but because we were thinking from first principles back in 2010 around what does the future of education look like? What makes sense? What do we see people on the ground needing? And so because of that, we were sort of always, I would say, thinking about what's next and building from those first principles, not from what we saw our neighbor doing. I mean, I can't tell you how many of those boot camps we've seen this like copy our website exactly, or even funnier, I think, is copy little quirks in our business model that we weren't even sure were working, but then people were just sort of blindly copying because they assumed if GA was doing them, they must be the way to do it. And then, and so, and we're already moving on to the next thing and they're copying the last thing. And so I think you have to sort of always think about that as like, is there a real principle behind where this company's coming from in innovation or are they just trying to capitalize on a trend? And I think there's, by the way, I think that's good, important advice for all of your audience that are entrepreneurs or looking to start something too, is that, I'm not saying you have to be 100% original. I don't think anything in business is 100% original. But I really think you have to get down to that fundamental level, those first principles, those axioms of why this business matters now, what's going to make it work, what is it, that has to be independent of what's happening around you. Because that will work once, right? You can copy a business model in a moment in time, but you can't innovate going forward. And there's not a single business that doesn't need to innovate going forward if you're starting from that point. So I, that's, yeah, I just think that's really important as, as for people who want to be innovators, want to have their own businesses is you've got to get down to the, what I would say, you got to get down to the metal, you know? Yeah. And so we were always thinking big. We always understood that our job was to make this as accessible as it can be across a lot of different dimensions. We wanted to survive for the long term. And so, you know, we have a headquarters of 250 people mm-hmm. who literally all they do is work on making the entire system across the world better, right? We have entire teams of people who are working on ways to make every one of our career coaches and instructors better, right? How to make the experience for the instructors better, how to, um, you know, make the interfaces with employers better, how to make students, you know, make the community of alumni stronger and more meaningful. I mean, this is sort of what we spend all our time doing. And so, you know, a lot of these boot camps will have, you know, if you went just to the campus and just opened and looked around, you would say, oh, like, it's fairly similar. You know, I would say our, our furniture is usually nicer and things like that. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that's sort of irrelevant in the scheme of things. But, you know, but what they don't always see is what's behind that is the machine of people working to sort of improve on what's already there you know, and frankly, benefiting from this like level of getting to see what's going on in Singapore and Australia and talking to some of the biggest employers in the world about what they're seeing and thinking about what the trends are. And so all of that, I think, sort of then feeds into a big feedback loop and helps us sort of build this virtuous circle of getting better and better and better. Yeah. And, and I um, love the, yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that you touched upon um, like what goes on behind the scenes. For someone who is looking at doing a boot camp, we often get asked, like, which is the best boot camp? What I should pay attention to? What advice do you have of, like, for someone who is uh, new to this, evaluating which school to go to? What things should they pay attention to? Well, you know, it's really, this is such an interesting question in interesting ways because, you know, it's funny because the crowd, like, I talked about the sort of like this sort of this like conventional wisdom has sort of sort of hopped around over the last 10 years, right? And it, it sort of depends on who's who's spending the most on marketing at any given time, right? Like there was a very long time where, you know, there was a handful of boot camps and we were among them 
because we had to compete, who were literally competing on what percentage point of outcomes they were getting, right? Whether it was 98% or 99% or 97% or 96%. And what I would recommend is people not look so closely at things like that, not because they don't matter, but because there's not act. If you look under the hood at how numbers are sort of calculated, there's a lot of ways to fudge those numbers to get a slightly higher thing. And what's more important is to ask some very important questions like what kind of career support resources do they, does this organization have? How do they invest in them? How do they talk about them? You know, I often suggest that people ask, you know, this philosophical question, how does the worst student in this class feel about the program? Mm, I like that question. And what's important about it is to say, like, what are the value, you know, is like, there are a lot of ways. I mean, and we've all been brainwashed in this society to believe that educate, like the best education is the most exclusive education and the one that like filters out the most people, right? It's just sort of like built into our blood to think that way about education. And there's been boot camps that have tried to build businesses based on that model, which has always sort of been anathema to what we sort of thought was like, we were trying to build a sort of new way of thinking about this. Because our view is the way that, you know, if you want to succeed on a sort of some sort of elitist basis, the way to do it is to let in a bunch of people that already know how to code, teach them a little bit more, and then take credit for their success. By the way, that's what Harvard has done for, you know, 100 years. And it's not the same thing as being a great educational program. Now, I get it. Some people want to have that positive signal, and it's sort of the way our culture works. But I think for people, you know, look, you want to go in, you want to feel like, A, are you going to be comfortable there, right? Are there people like you that have been successful in this program? You know, do I feel like I'm going to be supported? If I have a hard week, which you, I guarantee every student has at least one hard week, usually multiple hard weeks. This is not an easy thing to do, right? What, how is the organization going to support me? You know, will the organization be around when I'm trying to get my second job? Will people know, you know, I mean, like, have people heard of this program? Well, you know, how far will it travel? If I move to a new state or a new country, what will that mean for my experience and and how I can talk about it? And these are all the things, I mean, that I think people tend, you know, I talked a little bit about that, the 30 year framework of like traditional graduate school. I think sometimes in the boot camp space, people get very, very myopic and think about like minute to minute what's going to happen right now. And I think that, you know, like I think you have to, you have to sort of back up and think, think a little bit long term about what am I, you know, how long term is this, the fact that I did this program going to pay off for me? Yeah. You know, I think like what kind of instructor training is there, right? How consistent is the instructor training? You know, how long has the curriculum been in development? How structured is the curriculum? You know, all of these different things matter. And, but it's really down to like, I I actually think stuff that's around the experience, like pay attention to like, how do the students that are there seem to seem to feel about the organization, right? How does the staff get treated, right? You know, all of these things matter. Where, you know, where's the attention put on this thing? You know, one of the things that I, I find really funny is there's this sort of like, there was this dynamic for a while. I used to call it the P90X approach to marketing boot camps, where again, it, it was a very male, very, very SF male kind of like thing of like, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. Like, you can't handle it, but if you can, you are a rock star, you know, that kind of like vibe, which is, by the way, exactly how they market P90X. But if you notice, then like it's very male. And if you notice, like even that company that does this is Beachbody Fitness, right? The that does the P90X. When they market like to women, they market completely differently. And it's all, you can do this. It's hard, but you'll make it through it. Like we're going to make it convenient for you. And I think it's, it's those two extremes. You have to pay attention to those are just marketing tactics. But like, I think the real thing is, are they going to be honest? Is this going to be, this is going to be challenging. There is no world in that this is not going to be challenged. There's no world in which you are not going to be expected to bring your A game, both through the learning part of it and the job search part of it. Anyone who promises something else is is just blowing smoke, right? So are they realistic about that? Do you have a realistic view of that, right? Are they clear about where they can offer support, right? These are the sort of issues that like, I think make the difference between a really great experience and one that's very disappointing. Awesome. That's yeah. a, that's an awesome answer. I think... Um, 
especially the one about like what does your worst student how does your worst student talk about you i really like that question well yeah because yeah because think about that like like the worst there, there is always and by the way i will be the first to say like not everybody at ga has an amazing experience there are people who struggle there are people who it turns out it wasn't a right choice we do a lot i mean we probably spend half of the time of our staff with those students some of them it's to help them realize that maybe maybe this wasn't the right choice for them and then we try to help them find a path through that that makes sense for them that isn't you know destructive and we're very proactive and upfront about that you know but we also spend a ton of time with students who are falling behind who are struggling who feel like they're not in place there like we see that as just as important as making sure those star students get those six figure jobs right yeah. every school has students who's gotten six figure jobs yeah if that's why you're going to a place you are it's crazy because you know first off i don't think there's a single bootcamp that has an average graduating salary of six figure jobs if you want a six figure job you will have one in the near term i promise but graduating with that you know it is very specific when that happens when 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 i see schools starting to advertise those things it feels a little bit like cherry picking stats to try to make them more attractive and i think it's very it makes me very nervous because it's it's you know what you're doing is you're creating a whole set of false expectations that you know is just sort of a formula for disappointment and then they sort of put the blame back on the students which i don't think is right either so look this stuff is complicated it is not you know and i think education in, in, is different than a lot you know we are in america in 2020 are trained to believe that the customer is always right you can get whatever you want and education is not a consumer product in that way right you got to bring something to it and what you put into it is what you get out of it it can be very i will say like as a startup we've struggled to train our team to think that way and to have that balance because we want to be incredibly customer service oriented and customer experience oriented but that doesn't mean saying yes to everything that our students want and what every student wants and because they have to bring something too we can't do it for them i wish we could i would be a billionaire right now and i would have 100 guitars against this wall <laughs> we could just do it for people right awesome awesome yeah no yeah. I, th i think that makes a lot of sense and, and i think you know you're a boss in many ways and you 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 you've talked a lot about business excellence educational excellence um, i've also seen awesome pictures on twitter with you it, with government leaders and like the united nations and things like that i think when we're thinking about america and this unemployment situation and looking at history we've seen government step in in the labor market do you think that obviously we don't know what's going to happen in the future but what are your thoughts about government playing a factor in this space and and potentially collaborating with boot camps now i know they have in the past but what are your thoughts about what might happen in the future about like just the total boot camp well, space in general Well, with maybe GA, like what what are things that GA has done with government, and do you think that GA will oh, do yeah. more with government for the labor market and, oh, and helping yeah. people? Yeah, yeah. So, so we, I mean, it's interesting. Our legacy, like Michael Bloomberg, his administration gave us a grant when we were just getting started that really helped pay for that classroom, that first those first experiments. And so, and I, you know, the reality, whether or not, you know, I don't know how I feel about. 100% government involvement in education. I think there are some real complications to it, but what I will say is that but like that like if there's no world in which government can't you know is going to play no role in the coming decades, right? And so we have always seen part of our job is sort of being an emissary to the government and helping them understand what we're doing, why it's important, why students are coming to us and doing it in a collaborative way not in an antagonistic way you know it's funny there were some boot camps it was, this is actually pretty funny to me you know this was when uber was crushing it right and they were crushing it by like playing hardball with every you know municipality and taxing limousine commission and so they thought the, the right way to play against regulation and the government was to just like just kind of ignore them or, or put up their middle finger at it and that did not work very well right and and because The reality is this government does not want people not getting jobs, right? Government wants people to get jobs, they want people to have access to skills that can get jobs. They are aligned in principle, but they also know that there is a long and storied history of people using the sort of accoutrement of education as a way to scam customers, right? 
Now, I mean, and that's why a lot of these regulatory things are in place. So I think first off, the level of regulation, like you got to play nice and you got to obey. Do I think all the rules make sense? Absolutely not. But I think the spirit behind those rules are not something to fly in the face of because they are all from a place of we want to protect the individual, which I think we think is really, really important. Now, beyond just regulation, and by the way, we're regulated in every state and licensed in every state we operate, and we think that's a really important part of it. But the next level is how can governments actually, you know, in a positive way, without just subsidizing a massive debt bubble, help you know, students and, and organizations like us actually do more of what we do so well. And I think there's a lot of real promise around that. I think, you know, I've been actually, you know, sort of like advocating to, you know, now several White House administrations at the states and city level around ways that I think are pretty, are that like they could really help this. And, I, and I, you know, we may see some of that right now, actually. I, you know, I've been involved with some conversations that I'm thinking, pay attention, you know, as incompetent as this administration is, I actually think we might get some positive movement around things around workforce training and stuff like that because of this crisis. Now, where we see a lot of real promise is at the city and state level. And I would say, you know, we city and state level, and I, I would say it's city and states, it's, but it's not just government, it's government and the really sort of important sort of anchor employers of those cities and states. And it's sort of this public-private partnership model, and we're seeing more and more of it, and now more than ever. And so I'm very hopeful. You know, we're gonna, you're going to see a couple of announcements from us pretty soon. You know, we just did this big thing in Louisville, and there's going to be more of that, of just really thinking creatively about how, you know, we can help cities bolster their sort of, growth, you know, employment economy. They can help us reach audiences we couldn't otherwise reach. And we can, we can both help employers get the talent they need in a way that's sustainable and sort of community driven. And I think there's this real sort of win-win-win model that's possible, but it takes a lot of coordination. And it's really complicated. And so, you know, some of these things take a long time. But I think the more sort of success cases there are, the better there, there will be. Yeah. And Jake, we covered, uh, like, we covered a lot in this episode. We covered uh, how someone picks a boot camp, your thoughts on investment governments companies are working to solve the like the late the labor problem to empower the workforce and retrain them we're going to do the a lightning round right now and this is basically where we're going to jump into the last part of our podcast where Archer Rubin and I will ask you several questions but we are looking for actionable res- uh, apps resources that our listeners can actually take to discover careers and get started right now. And so with that said, Arthur, please take it away. Yeah. So this uh, question takes kind of like back to the basics. So imagine that you got dropped in a brand new city, you didn't know anyone, and you're starting all over again from scratch, and you only have $100 in your pocket. So what would you do? And how would you spend that $100 to break into tech? Wow. Do I have a place to sleep? Because I kind of feel like there's like basic things. Yeah, first. let's let's uh, um, let's assume that you already have a couch to crash <laughs> on and a laptop. You know what I would do? Yeah, you know what I would do, and I, this is just like it's such basic, but I would go to as many meetups as possible, mm-hmm. and I would introduce myself as someone looking to break into tech and just learning and have complete humility and try to build authentic relationships with people and trust that opportunities would appear out of those sort of connections that I made. Mm -hmm. Also, some of those meetups might have some free food, which it sounds like I would probably need. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, You also talked in a pre-chat about a a lost and lonely period in your 20s that helped you reach some epiphanies. Um, And there's probably several, I know for sure there's definitely people listening to the podcast right now that would call it their lost and lonely period in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and maybe even older than that. What guidance would you give someone that's living in this time that's that's trying to find themselves? How how would you give them direction? Mm. I mean, man, I, first off, like you're not alone, right? I think everybody goes through that period. Everybody who's done anything interesting with their lives has gone through that period. And so you have to, I would say the first thing is to ask, what can I learn from this moment? Because it is terrible and I, I can relate. And the anxiety and the fear and the sense of isolation and loneliness is real. I would say 
the one piece of advice that I always give people sort of in that lost thing is you've got to find a way to continue to move forward and take action, even when it feels like you don't know what you're supposed to do, right? Which means continually push yourself out of your comfort zone, try things, even if you're just going to hear a bunch of rejection, seek out that rejection. You know, somebody once told me, if you never hear no, it means you're not asking for enough. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, I think it's really hard. They, they try to avoid those no's at any cost. And I think going out there and really looking for that, but then also really looking to learn from those no's. And then I think that's something some people don't mind hearing no, but they're basically sociopaths and they never like kind of learn like what those no's are telling. You know, I would say your community can help you. People do want to help. Oftentimes, though, people won't know how to help unless you give them a roadmap to helping you which means you have to ask for things, you have to listen, and sometimes you have to create the best narrative of what you, where you are and where you're trying to get to, even if you don't 100% believe that's your definite high conviction thing that you want to do. Come up with your best story you have right now, use it until you develop a better story and you're even more convinced about something. So a lot of times, especially I see like young 20-somethings who just have no idea what they want to do, and they come in to talk to me and they're like, well, I don't know what I do, but I think I need a job. Can you help me? And I always say, no, I can't help you. Who am I supposed to call to help you? You just say you need a job. Like that's, I, That doesn't give me any context. Give me some context. Give me a story. Give me a way to help you that makes sense that I can do, right? And so I often think like in many ways, this journey is about coming up with better and better narratives for you yourself, right? Where you started where you want to get to, you know, yep. where are you on that journey? And, yep. uh, and so, yeah, so I think that, I mean, I know that's a little abstract, but honestly, like, I think like so many people need to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any routines for, um, like ways you organize yourself, like organize your goals, think about the future and maybe you can share some of those frameworks with our audience. You know, I've tried a lot of those things. You know, for our company, we use OKRs and we do planning sessions and stuff like that. Personally, I actually like to take an extreme view of like what Warren Buffett says, you know, where like come up with your list of 10 things and take five of them off the list or whatever. You know, I actually think you need one thing. I think the fewer goals you have and the more obsessed you are with them, the more likely you are to achieve them. So I'm always looking at like when I wake up in the morning, my question is, what is the one thing I absolutely have to do today because it's the most important thing. And I use that as my anchor to say, if I can do that thing, the day is okay. Now, obviously, I need to do a lot more things and I got stuff coming at me all the time. But what I will say is by waking up and thinking about that first, it keeps me from just fooling myself into doing a bunch of busy work that doesn't really matter. And I'm always trying to move the ball forward on, the, on those most important things. And a little bit of progress every day, you know, whether it's just with one email to someone that I really want to talk to, you know, can be more important than a hundred emails that don't really move the ball forward. Yeah. 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 Last few questions. So given that you're a musician, what's one to five or one to three albums that you would choose to play to get yourself in the zone into like hustle mode? Uh, To get in the zone, like what pumps me up? I mean, I've, you know, I've got a whole playlist of like pump up music that I've had over the years, um, you know, specific songs. I'm really like a big, I'm like a big, like deadhead and fish fan. Like that's, mm-hmm. I really love the the creativity and the joy of that kind of music and the flow and the sort of improvisational kind of fluidity of it. And so I tend to, when I really need to like go into the zone, I'll like put on like 1974 Grateful Dead show and just kind of like, just focus on that for like two or three hours. That's kind of how I'll do that. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And um, yeah. <laughs> for the people that are listening, what are the best ways to get in touch with you? And how, where do you see GA going in the next five, 10 years? Well, those are two very different. Getting in touch with me, like I'm, I'm not that hard to find. You know, I'm, I'm on all social media platforms and LinkedIn. You know, we, we could have a whole conversation about, you know, how people get in touch with, busy people and, and how they like can sort of rise to the top. I, I get a lot of people sort of messaging me on things on LinkedIn 
without any context, without any sort of value add, you know, just sort of saying, can we like spend time together? And I will say that I think mastering the art of coming to the table with something, you know, when you want to get somebody's time is really, really important. Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone, was really influential for me learning how to do that. But I think that's something a lot of people need to learn how to do. And it can pay off massively. The future of GA, I think what we will see is in some ways more of the same. I think we're going to go to more places. I think we're going to be able to serve more people. I think, you know, this pandemic has really shown, I think we're going to be more hybrid, more online and offline, where you can get the best of both worlds, which I think is really powerful. And I think more employer, deep employer connections at all different levels of the stack. That's what I would say. Got it. So like GA to a, to a million or 10 million people within the next five, 10 years. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, those are actually our goals. So, so yeah, we're thinking about it. And, I, and you know what? I should say one thing about that too, is that, you know, when we got started, some people thought that like, some people confuse bigness. In education, is one of these weird things where people assume that once you're big, you can't be good. And I get where that comes from. It's another thing that we're sort of brainwashed into a little bit. And I think that's where like the, the fact of centralized resources and really care and, and operational discipline really matter. But the simple truth is, is what, we, what drives us is that scale is not just for scale's sake. It's because that scale opens up resources for us to do cooler and cooler things for our students, create more and more services, more and more offerings in a way that you just can't if you're too small. And so we're constantly looking at how do we create even a bigger tent so more people can come into it because we know that everybody benefits from that. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for taking time to speak with us. And we really appreciate it. If you need anything else from us, just let us know. Without further ado, let's break in. Let's break in. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.